Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. In this week's program, posted April 28, 2017, after the first round of presidential voting in France, we talk with Terry E. Givens, provost and professor of political science at Silicon Valley's Menlo Park College. Her article in the new WPJ Spring issue is headlined, How the Left Can Write Itself. We'll also point out other top features in the new issue, cover line, Fascism Rising. But first, this week's Winners and Losers report from Ian Bremmer, president of Eurasia Group, Global Risk Consultants. I got the Trump 100 Days Winners and Losers edition, Mexico Loser. It's paying for the wall. Trump can't get away from it and all the NAFTA stuff. Canada, loser, add to that soft lumber. Who knew we'd declare war in Canada? UK, winner. Come on. I mean, you know, Brexit at the end of the day, May looks pretty solid. No problems with this Trump meeting. North Korea, winner. They love being in the headlines. And China, winner. They bought themselves another 100 days. You're listening to World Policy on Air. Now this. L'assassin, c'est l'idéologie qui porte et au nom de laquelle le terrorisme euh, tue. C'est le fondamentalisme islamiste. Marine Le Pen, leader of the far-right French National Front, was earlier than most to blame Islamist fundamentalism as the ideology behind the Paris massacre of 2015 and the fatal shooting of a policeman on the Champs-Élysées, for which the Islamic State took credit last week, was seen by many as an 11th-hour boost to her prospects in the first round of presidential voting days later. In fact, she finished an extremely close second, with almost 22% of the vote, versus nearly 24% for neophyte centrist candidate Emmanuel Macron, ex-banker and finance minister, who quickly began drawing support from traditional right and left parties that trailed far behind. But win or lose their May 7th runoff, Le Pen has already demonstrated the growing strength of her populist, anti-establishment, anti-immigrant, anti-EU following in France. And that has provided yet another example of the right-wing tide sweeping through, if not yet fully over, the continent. Indeed, some analysts saw any ultimate triumph by Le Pen leading to a French exit from the European Union, so-called Frexit, or more likely crippling internal opposition by Paris to key EU policies. A right-wing revival in Europe and the United States, and how progressives can fight it, is considered in the new WPJ Spring issue by Terry E. Givens, provost and political science professor at Silicon Valley's Menlo Park College. Her article is headlined, How the Left Can Write Itself, and we discussed it just days ago for this podcast. Professor Givens, welcome to World Policy on Air. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. How surprised were you by the outcome of first-round voting in France? Not surprised at all by the result, except for the fact that the results were incredibly close to the polling, and I think the U.S. and British polling firms need to take lessons from the French. What results do you expect in the May 7 runoff? Well, you know, it's interesting. I think um, what's not going to be a surprise is that Macron is, is expected to win with Le Pen coming in, you know, second in the second round, because 
the as I wrote in my book, 2005 book, Voting Radical Right in Western Europe, the mainstream left and right have consistently joined together to work against the far right, as seen in the 2002 presidential election and in legislative elections. Immediately after the results were known, most of the other candidates, with the exception of Mélenchon, urged their supporters to support Macron. And so the expectation is that he's going to uh, win uh, and already has a substantial lead in the polls. And what impact from how Le Pen does in the end would you expect on the EU and on the far-right momentum across Europe? Well, what's interesting is we've seen Geert Wilders in the Netherlands and Le Pen in France perform better than in previous elections, but not well enough to gain power. So I think there have been instances in the past where the far-right has gained power, as I've written about, but... I think we're going to see continued difficulty for the right. I think we'll see continued support for the far right, but um, not necessarily enough for them to actually uh, gain power. So there was a report this morning about the the off day in Germany, the far right party there losing their uh, uh, leader who was running for the chancellor position, stepping down. Um, So I think it's going to be uneven. And so I think the far right is has had some increases in support but not necessarily enough to maintain their momentum they are feeding on the anti-globalization and anti-immigrant trend but uh, i think the ultimate impact on the eu is is going to be a slowdown on european integration that has already been going on and even backwards movement in some of the eastern european countries but uh, maybe even uh, potentially a strengthening amongst the countries that are the core of the European Union. Let's consider how the far right got to this point. Start with the tide of migration that followed World War II, first in the United Kingdom and the reaction there. Right. In the UK, they had a flow of immigration coming from former colonies, and um, that led to initial uh, conflict between uh, immigrants and uh, natives uh, including riots between different groups and so on. Um, through the 60s, you had Enoch uh, Powell and his Rivers of Blood speech and, and conflict that uh, went on through the 60s. And we saw the rise of um, you know, Nazi groups and so on. But um, it, it kind of tempered itself until the 1990s when we saw, again, the rise of the far right, including the National Front and so on. And so... We've seen conflict develop because of the the tide of immigration, but in the UK, immigration was always experienced as something that was expected, that was uh, an, kind of an almost a normal process because of the link to the former colonies, and people became citizens, whereas um, I, the story was a little different in other countries in Europe. Well, talk about France and Germany in particular. Yes, in particular, in France and Germany, the immigration there was considered to be temporary because in France and Germany, they imported immigrants because of the need to um, rebuild their economies after World War II. And so Germany in particular was uh, importing immigrants from places like Turkey. Um, And so these immigrants were seen as, you know, they were called Gastarbeiter, guest workers. And even in France, even though they had the longstanding connection with um, Algeria, they were still considered um, temporary workers. And then when they tried to stop immigration in the late 70s, or sorry, the, uh, the late 60s, early 70s, they the immigration continued, and then they 
um, the immigrants stayed. Uh, they did not return to their home countries. Immigration slowed after the oil crisis in the 1970s, but picked up again after some key national court rulings. Talk about that, the growth of group identities among immigrants, and then something larger for the Muslims among them. Right. That after the, the immigration slowed in the 1970s, you had courts ruling that the immigrants who stayed had the right to family reunification, and you had a an interesting thing I started to see in the 80s and 90s was the shift from identifying as uh, the you know, Algerians or Turks to identifying as Muslims. And in a sense, this kind of political identity um, was um, something that developed because of things like discrimination um, and a focus on um, immigrants as uh, a, a immigrant identity. So um, as these groups began to grow and um, they began to move to places like the suburbs as youth culture developed, um, you had youth developing identities with hip-hop culture and so on. You had this uh, development of Burr culture in France and so on. Then um, the group identities began to pick up and uh, especially since they were experiencing high rates of unemployment and so on, um, it really uh, impacted the uh, types of cultures that, and, and the focus on discrimination. By the late 1990s, declining birth rates in Europe again created a demand for immigrant labor, but cultural prejudice opposed it. Say more about that. Right. So since the late 1990s in particular, um, we've seen this increasing public opinion that has been opposed to immigration. And that's been consistent also with exactly the rise of support for far-right parties. Um, so even though there's been this demand for labor, particularly in um, countries like Germany, where birth rates are declining, um, public opinion polls have consistently shown that uh, people want more immigration control. And so politicians have uh, consistently talked about immigration control, and yet um, their policies have not necessarily been consistently aligned with that. And so there's been this discussion in pol the political science literature about the inconsistency of politicians and, and public opinion. Um, so politicians saying that they, they are for immigration control, but the policies not necessarily being, al being in alignment with that and with public opinion. Um, and so there's, a, there's an interesting disconnect, at least so, during the 1990s. I think we've seen a shift in that more recently, particularly with the competition coming from the far-right parties where we've seen a more consistent approach of being more um, uh, immigration control uh, in the 2000s. I was surprised that you saw the right revolt actually aided by the success of center-left politicians in the UK, Germany, and the US, notably uh, including President Bill Clinton. Explain that. Yeah, and that was an interesting phenomenon that was happening while I was kind of in the midst of my research on the radical right in the, the late 1990s. You had um, Bill Clinton, Tony Blair, and Gerhard Schroeder come into power during that time who espoused a very um, center-left neoliberalism that was very much wanting to have a, a welfare reform that tried to put people back to work. So there was this, this ideology about um, uh, market 
reform um, and uh, back to work uh, focus that really was uh, revolved around um, you know putting people getting people off of welfare and back to work. So in the U.S., that was the welfare reform of the mid to late 1990s. In Germany, that was uh, a policy that um, was uh, revolved around um, getting people off of welfare and back to work. So they had these uh, uh, work uh, uh, centers where people were uh, required to go and uh, try to get jobs and so on. And and, um, so... The idea was a good idea, but unfortunately, um, it reduced social welfare benefits at a time when wages were stagnating, manufacturing jobs were going away, and there were few alternatives for these people. And so uh, these people began to see the economic um, uh, situation as a zero-sum game, and they were losing out. And so, unfortunately, a lot of these people were... Uh, using, we're also attracted to the messages of people who, like at the time, Jean-Marie Le Pen and um, other far-right politicians who were using racial and ethnic minorities as scapegoats. So unfortunately, the policies of people like Bill Clinton and and Tony Blair and Gerhard Schröder were feeding into the messages of uh, racist-type messages and anti-immigrant messages of the Jean-Marie Le Pen's and the Republicaner at the time and the National Front um, of using immigrants as scapegoats and that, you know, the messages at the time were, oh, we have too many immigrants and every immigrant is taking a job away from a native. And so we have 300,000 immigrants and 300,000 unemployed. And so unfortunately those neoliberal policies were uh, a catalyst in some ways for the far right. What might have seemed a, a philosophically progressive French effort to force the integration of Muslims into the culture also backfired. Yes, absolutely, because um, one of the things was, you know, the, if you look at the education system, was really trying to make the immigrants see themselves as French and also to integrate them into the French system. And so they... Uh, these children, you know, they, they really believed that they were French, but once they became, you know, get, got into um, high school and, and so on, they weren't able to, their the schooling wasn't putting them into a position where they would get, could get into college, and they, were, they found discrimination in housing and in jobs. So in a sense, it created a greater alienation. So in a sense, they were told they were French, but they weren't being treated like French. They were being discriminated against, and so it caused greater alienation. And um, so the, the situation was such that a lot of young people were, you know, identifying as French, but then, you know, not being treated like French. They were treated badly by the police. And um, so it also took away, felt like they felt like their culture was being taken away and that uh, they, they were also... Uh, being told that you know being Muslim was not a good thing, and so there were a lot of problems with the way that the French government was trying to uh, you know I put integration in quotes because it really was not a way of integrating these the especially the young people. It was really a way of trying to deny that they were they had a culture at all. Hmm. 
exploitation of racism by the right, pandering to intolerance, you call it, leaves an opening for the left along three lines. Talk first about why the why and how of curbing income inequality. This is one of the critical issues of our time because, you know, if you look at uh, the economic situation right now, inequality is just growing and growing and, and becoming a, a, just a hugely critical issue. And it, and it comes down to um, wages and how they've stagnated over uh, since the 1970s. And I think it's uh, something that if we don't tackle it, it's just going to become uh, a just a worse and worse issue. <laughs> so, um, and actually, you know, it's, I think it's connected to the issue of unions because we know that union laborers make higher wages than the non-union. And I think Germany is a good example of a country that has been able to accommodate unions and have greater income uh, equality. And also, um, if you look at some countries are, are uh, toying with the idea of having a um, minimum income um, and looking at other ways to basically you know, raise the minimum wage. Um, I was just reading a story about how Australia has a very high minimum wage. But we have to come up with some way of making sure that uh, everybody has a basic way you know, to survive. <laughs> um, you know, we've got too much homelessness, um, too many people who uh, you know, can't have, survive on basic housing and things like that. So um, I think that... Uh, that's part of the reason why we're seeing people who are so concerned about, um, you know, the competition at the lower levels of income. They see immigrants as competition rather than people who they should be in solidarity with. And so we need to curb income inequality in order to get away from this idea that everybody's in competition with each other and give everybody a minimum uh, level uh, you know, level of being able to survive um, and have it not be this kind of uh, you know basically everybody's falling through the cracks not everybody but of course but you know people are just falling through the cracks and um, also you know there's a, a variety of ways to to try to regulate um, uh, industry so that we we try to reduce the differences between um, what the top level employees are making and the the bottom level employees um, and we know that manufacturing jobs are going away so um, that's something that's going to be critical to look at and find ways to um, you know what are what is the new economy you know I'm a I'm a college professor and we're looking at how are we training our students for the next economy you know I'm right in the middle of Silicon Valley and um, you know technology of course is is one of the drivers but you know what's the middle in you know where are the middle income jobs and how are we training our students as well as lower wage people to be ready for that economy uh, in a larger sense uh, as we become more automated if everybody isn't needed for production they certainly are needed for consumption uh, of the products that are being produced so the notion of a of a minimum income is is starting to make sense to a lot of people the third pathway that you talk about is what you call common sense immigration policies what would they look like 
the number one thing we have got to do is provide visas because the jobs are there. You know, I live, as I said, in Silicon Valley, and um, you know, we talk all the time about the fact that there are jobs here for immigrants. And the problem is we don't have enough visas. And I talk, I actually, I mean, this is my one of my main areas of research. And we know that the main thing we need to do for immigration reform is provide more visas. If we had more visas, we wouldn't have so many undocumented people in the country. <laughs> um, and I, I tell people all the time, the, the number one reason we have undocumented people in the country is because we don't have enough visas. <laughs> so, um, but uh, besides visas, we need to look at what we need. We need people to work in agriculture. We need people to work in, um, you know, restaurants. I mean, everybody knows somebody who is working a job, whether it's in construction, whether it's in the hospitality industry. I mean, whether it's in, um, you know, uh, there's all kinds of low-wage jobs. And frankly, I would be. We need to make those low-wage jobs better paid. And the one way to do it is to make sure that these people are documented so that these people are getting paid better. So, and like you said, they can consume more. And the more they are consuming, the better off the, the companies are that are selling these things. They're going to be able to buy more at the grocery stores. The grocery stores are going to be able to hire more people. I mean, it's all... You know, uh, it all works together, and you know, there's every, a lot of people are starting to understand this more. And I think there's a lot of people in industry who are saying, "Hey, wait a second! You know, we need to pay our people better, so that they can consume more, so that they can, you know, so that they can buy our cars, and so that they can buy our phones, and and so on." And um, you know, even with healthcare, I think you're seeing the backlash because people are like, "Wait a second! You know, we need our people to be healthy and be able to afford healthcare, so that they can uh, continue to work." for us and you know we don't want to have to worry about whether our you know our our employees can afford health care and and so on so i think we're starting to see a bit of a shift in how people are are recognizing that stagnating wages and and having undocumented people working for low wages is not a good thing for our economy while many white working class voters reject uh, such supportive immigration policies and income policies, studies show that growing ranks of minority working class voters are not so receptive to politicians who appeal to populist views. Say more about that. Yeah, so um, I think a lot of minority working class voters are uh, understand, you know, that these uh, populist appeals are not helpful to them. Um, they understand that um, you know they, that these uh, uh, immigration policies, and actually, you know, if you look at uh, uh, the, they're not necessarily voting on the basis of even the immigration policies. They understand that there aren't easy answers to um, a lot of these issues. It's not just that, um, oh, you know, if we just say we're going to buy American, that's going to fix everything. Um, uh, so we have to figure out what is it that's going to fix our economy, and, and it's not just to say buy American. It's like we have to find ways to uh, you know, expand our manufacturing in a way that makes sense. And you know, a lot of minority vote, working class voters understand that we need to support education um, and that we need that that the government is critical to supporting things like um, you know, healthcare and 
that we don't just want to cut government. <laughs> so I think that's the big difference is that minority working class voters understand the role of government and that it's important to a lot of the things that help them on a day-to-day -day basis, whereas a lot of uh, white working class voters are just frustrated and think government's the problem. Um, and that's a lot of what populist politicians are saying. Or they, you know, a lot of white working class voters just see, think that you know, the uh, populist politicians are going to make sure that the white working class, you know, is getting theirs, <laughs> you know, uh, or is going to make sure that they, they get the benefits and, you know, these other people don't. And that's why the, you know, the anti-immigrant sentiment, oh, we're going to keep those immigrants out and they aren't going to get the benefits or, or the jobs and all of that. Um, and they're, the Minority working class voters don't necessarily. Some do, but most, you know, understand that that's not that the competition isn't going to damage them, and that you know all boats can't be lifted if uh, you get the right policies in place. The demographics of this country are shifting, and so a lot of what you see among the white working class voters is this fear. There's that it's this general fear that they're losing out, and um, so the minorities. Um, have been losing out for a long time, and white working class voters are just starting to get this sense that they're losing out. So there's, that dynamic is starting to play itself out, and I think this is going to be an ongoing issue. Actually, I have a friend, Justin Guest, who just wrote a, a book about this, and um, I think this is a dynamic that's going to have an important role in politics going forward for a long time. In North America, you see progressive potential by state leaders in California and New York and by Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I think that um, it's one of the reasons I appreciate living in, in California. And um, it's really an interesting phenomenon that the these uh, <clears throat> sorry um these leaders are really uh dominating the pro in many different ways things like uh climate change uh, along with you know the more a more pro immigrant stance and being receptive to refugees and and so on and so um there's a sense that you know there's hope obviously they give hope to progressive politics but also that uh you know, if we keep in mind that, you know, if you look at the popular vote and, and what has what happened recently in France, that there is hope for the left to a certain extent, not if you look at the, the traditional um, left, but um, that, you know, there, there's reasonable, there was a reasonable vote for, for left politicians more generally and progressive politicians. And so um, one thing that, I, well, actually I gave three things in my article, but I think it's going to be critical that um, we look at what leaders are doing in places like Canada and um, New York and California and what is appealing, for example, you know, gun control is very popular in California and other issues, and um, but also what's not working. Um, and, you know, we have a lot of economic issues in these places. And... Um, how we're dealing with things like immigration. And so there are a lot of challenges, and it's not going to be easy going forward. And I still think there's a lot of challenges for the left, even in places like California. But um, one thing that's helped California is that we survived the um, 
economic downturn, Jerry Brown took some really tough economic measures uh, to help the state get through it, and um, that's the kind of leadership that's going to be needed. There's also hope among U.S. Democrats that sheer incompetence by the Trump administration and rhetoric continually contradicted by actual facts may redirect all but the most loyal portions of Trump's Republican base. Is it realistic to think that things really do have to get worse before they get better? Well, we're kind of stuck here, unfortunately. You know, we we'll have to see what happens in 2018, but... Uh, you know, we haven't. We're only we're barely a hundred days in, and uh, um, it's uh, a situation where uh, I think things will get worse uh, before they get better because we have to get to the next election. But um, the uh, broader issue is um, how will the left mobilize? We're starting to see you know, what's happening with the the Democrats more generally with the new leadership, um, what's happening with special elections, which, you know, it's hard to say right now because um, there's just been one or two. There's more coming. Um, and so I think, you know, I don't think it's a good idea to rely on the incompetence of the Trump administration. It's incumbent upon the left more broadly, and, and I mean the left – not just here in the U.S., but um, in Europe as well, and um, to, you know, be proactive. And there's been a lot of grassroots activity. You know, you had, um, you know, the different marches, and and there's a lot of um, activity going on in terms of, you know, people deciding to run for office at all different levels. And that's the kind of activity that's going to be important, is people taking action all the way from, you know, the school boards all the way up to, you know, running for president. That's the kind of activity that's going to make a difference, and people being proactive. It's not going to be waiting for incompetence at the, by Trump and, and the congressional Republicans. It's going to be what happens on a day-to-day basis in the localities, in the states, and uh, people deciding to run for office. And I think that's the, the most important thing. Um, and we need to start making things better at every level. Professor Gibbons, thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Terry E. Gibbons is provost and professor of political science at Silicon Valley's Menlo Park College. Her books include Voting Radical Right in Western Europe from Cambridge University Press in 2005 and Legislating Equality, the Politics of Anti-Discrimination Policy in Europe from Oxford University Press in 2014. For the spring issue of World Policy Journal, cover line Fascism Rising, she wrote the article headlined How the Left Can Write Itself. Since we spoke, far-left French unbowed movement leader Jean-Luc Mélenchon, who'd finished fourth in round one, held off endorsing Macron while he surveyed his disappointed followers. Quote, not one vote must go to the National Front, a Mélenchon spokesman declared, but possible abstentions could be critical. And Le Pen won a video victory with coverage of her being cheered in Macron's hometown of Amiens at a factory whose jobs are set to move to Poland, which she vowed to prevent. Macron was jeered and booed when he showed up after meeting with union representatives at the local Chamber of Commerce, but he later said he'd try to get a new buyer for the plant or arrange for job retraining. Le Pen later campaigned for right-wing Riviera votes in Nice, as one poll indicated Macron's support slipping. 
Featured in the new WPJ spring issue, Coverline Fascism Rising, you'll find numerous views on how corruption of language and distortion of history contribute to dictatorship and how the process can best be fought. Also reports on the infrastructure of counterinsurgency, on the retro-macho politics that doomed Dilma Rousseff in Brazil, and on Ukraine, buffer or flashpoint between Russia and the West. And listen next week when our podcast will consider the dangerous politics of fabricated terrorism. World Policy On Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Editor Christopher Shea, online news editor Laurel Jerombeck, podcast producer Anna Grace Carter. I'm David Alpern. Thank you.